0: Hi everybody, I am Tony Ganser of 90.3 WCPN. As Stephanie said, you know the question and answer period is really uh, the most fun for us, so if you do have a question about something that we talk about or even something we don't get to, please do come up during that. We will be gentle and uh, you can participate, so that'll be great. Uh, I'd actually like our panelists to introduce themselves, uh, say a few words about
1: themselves before we get going. Uh, Reza. Hi, my name is Reza. Um, I'm an IT project management by profession, but I have been an activist within the Persian community for past 20 years in United States and recently in Cleveland.
0: Milana?
2: Good evening. Milana Sterio, Professor of Law at the Cleveland Marshall College of Law at Cleveland State University. Nida? Uh, good evening.
3: Nida I teach at Cleveland State University in the political science department, and I am an associate professor.
0: So Neda, maybe we stay with you for this uh, first question, which is really setting the table, because it seemed for a while there that uh, the headlines were all about World War III, that what was going on with the U.S. and Iran uh, after the assassination of General Qasem Soleimani. So maybe if you can start there and talk about what happened to bring us to this maybe new phase or new chapter or half chapter of relations between the U.S. and Iran.
3: Okay, so do you want the beginning leading to to the assassination, or do you want after? Yeah,
0: leading up to 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 the assassination, and who was General Soleimani?
3: Okay, so um, I I would say that when the United States pulled out of the uh, agreement on um, the Iran nuclear deal agreement in May of 2018, that kind of set the tone. It really. it really upset the, the Iranians clearly because they invested heavily in it as a way to join the international community and um, so President Rouhani who is a liberal um, invested a lot and it was really important mm-hmm. for them for this to succeed and then they started um, demonstrating their anger with the United States so President Trump imposed sanctions on Iran and those started hurting the Iranians very much And as a result, you had this what we call tit for tat strategy, where um, Iran would uh, demonstrate its power in this race of Hormuz, for example. Or um, it had its proxies respond. Um, And President Trump did not take any action. I think what really pushed him over the edge was um, in Iraq what happened with the US Embassy in Iraq and how it was stormed um, by protesters that are seen as proxies for Iran. And That pushed him over the edge. Now, we're not quite sure at what point President Trump decided to carry out the assassination. That's, we're not certain. There are a lot of ideas out there. Different reporters suggest different things. Some people say that while it dates back to really in the spring of 2019 when, um, uh, when Al-Quds forces were placed as a terrorist organization and that's when the idea started. He set the stage in um, the spring of 2019. Other people suggest that there was a list of retaliation and, and the Defense Department put it up there as the most extreme. Other people are suggesting that um, the State Department, um, Secretary of State Pompe- Pompeo, was really interested in uh, in getting Soleimani in, in the assassination. So we're not quite sure. There are different theories, different ideas. It's really too early to know exactly um, why this decision was made. Um, and. So General Soleimani was the head of Al-Quds forces. And he was responsible for Iran's policy in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon. Some people suggest also in Yemen. It's not exactly clear if it was also in Yemen. And he was very charismatic. He was always out there in, in the field. He had a lot of followers. Um, in, um, in the proc- in terms of the proxies that were supported by Iran in Iraq, in Syria, and um, in Lebanon. Uh, some people say that he was placing himself to, be, to run for the presidency. We're not quite sure of that, but he was certainly very popular, very, very influential. He had a direct contact to the supreme leader Ayatollah Khamenei. Um, so he was seen as a very important player in the government of Iran. Um, So that's it, yeah, Yeah, that's a
0: that's a good primer. So we have this central figure who, at least from the United States point of view, looks to be orchestrating a lot of Iranian proxies in regions where the U.S. is also orchestrating its own proxies for different battles. So Milena, when we come to this conclusion that the United States is going to assassinate the general of a military. Is this even legal? I mean, I guess the United States does a lot of things of of questionable legality, but in this particular case for assassination, what what are the two sides of this argument? Or is there only one side?
2: So there are two different issues when it comes to this. There's the legality of the strike under international law, which is binding on the United States. And then there's the legality of the strike under domestic constitutional law. So first, let me just briefly tell you about international law. Under international law, when a nation wants to use force against another sovereign nation, it needs to obtain United Nations Security Council authorization. In this case, that clearly had not happened and was not going to happen. And then the other way that a nation can use force legally under international law against another sovereign nation is in self-defense. So here the argument in favor of self-defense would have to be something like Soleimani was actively engaged in planning attacks against the United States that were imminent that were about to happen. So far, the United States has not really shared any intelligence information. It, I guess it could be true that he was planning imminent attacks against the United States, but we simply don't know because the United States has not released any kind of intelligence information that would back this up. And under international law, if a nation is using force in self defense, it's supposed to, under the United Nations Charter, um, report this back to the United Nations and say, we use self defense on this date under these circumstances because of X, Y, and Z. You know, that has not happened. So, under international law, very difficult to say that this is legal unless you somehow accept this self defense argument. Under domestic law, there are very important constitutional issues at stake. Um, does our president has, have the authority under the Constitution to use force unilaterally without congressional authorization? Or in this particular instance, does he actually have congressional authorization to use force? So there have, been, there have been congressional authorizations for the use of force against Al-Qaeda and also in Iraq in the wake of 9-11. I think it's a stretch to say that those two authorizations for the use of force, which go back to 2001 and 2002, authorized the US to use force in 2019 and I'm really worried that if this continues to be the justification that our children and grandchildren will be discussing these issues like 50, 60, 70 years from now, like, oh, does the 2001 AUMF authorize the US to use force in, you know, 2070? Uh, Probably not. Um, The other way that the president can use force constitutionally is under his inherent authority as commander in chief under the constitution. Um, If the president does so, he is constrained by The Constitution, in the sense that he's not supposed to wage a war, it's supposed to be a a short-term hostility that the president engages in. If the president engages in a war, then he's supposed to go back to Congress and seek congressional authorization for, for, for a proper war. And then there's also this statute called the Authorization to Use Milita- uh, the, I'm sorry, the War Powers Resolution, which also says that a president, if he or she uses force, is supposed to go back, report to Congress as to why force was used, and then within 60 days, the president is supposed to either cease using force or seek congressional congressional authorization to use force. The Trump administration has informed Congress of this use of force, but has actually classified its report to Congress, so we don't know what the Trump administration reported to Congress as to why the this stri- this strike was um, necessary.
0: So just quickly, is this precedent setting or do we not know because everything's classified still?
2: Well, in international law, it is precedent setting in the following way. It's precedent setting because this is really the first time that force was used against, in this manner against a state actor. FORCE HAD BEEN USED AGAINST INDIVIDUALS DESIGNATED AS TERRORISTS, BUT WHO WERE FOR THE MOST PART NON-STATE ACTORS. THIS IS REALLY THE FIRST TIME THAT FORCE WAS USED AGAINST AN OFFICIAL MILITARY LEADER OF A a SOVEREIGN NATION. SO IN THAT SENSE, I THINK IT IS PRECEDENT SETTING.
0: SO EVEN THOUGH THE uh, REVOLUTIONARY GUARD IS CALLED A TERRORIST on, ON A STATE DEPARTMENT LIST, this is a totally different. Well, I mean, President.
2: What's really problematic too is that President Trump actually designated the entire Iranian military relatively recent, recently as a terrorist organization. That, in and of itself, is unprecedented. So Soleimani had been on this official terrorist list by the State Department and the Kurds forces, but President Trump actually designated the entire Iranian military as a terrorist organization. That that is extremely problematic.
0: So, as many of you probably know, following the news, we have this assassination. There are all these headlines wondering what Iran was going to do. What was the retaliation going to be? Uh, There were missiles launched into Iraq, which targeted US military bases. Only recently did we find out that dozens and dozens of US military uh, servicemen and women were uh, injured, uh, suffering concussions. There was also the tragic uh, firing upon a passenger jet in Iran. And Reza, maybe you can talk about the reaction uh, in the Iranian community to all of this going on? Because it seemed like there were protests beginning to swell in Iran as this tension was building and then this this missile hits a passenger jet and it seems like things fizzle or maybe t- take a breather after that. You have a sure. comment?
1: Sure. The very first thing that has happened, the fate of diplomacy has faded out within the Persian community, within Iranian communities. And that's that's, that's a very sad and upsetting uh, event. Um, Iranian, they had hopes when a nuclear deal was, was signed for better futures and prosperity among Iranian uh, people. However, when President uh, Trump uh, pulled off of the nuclear deal, uh, there were a lot of economy uh, issues among Iranian citizens, which, by the way, Iranian regime used it as, a, as excuse to demonstrate that U.S. government is not trustworthy, and definitely the assassination of Soleimani actually gave them that, that podium, said, you see, we, we did tell you that U.S. government is not trustworthy, and they use it for their own agenda. Uh, however, uh, I do have to express that Iranian people do believe that Revolutionary Guard is not a trustworthy <laughs> <laughs> force themselves. So, I mean, they are the one that they do, um, they do crackdowns over uh, protest, younger generations. So when the, the airplane was shot down by, they call it accident, it's still too early to, to, to say that it's purely accidental, However, when that was shut down, they tried to cover for three days. When the news broke down under international pressures, there were a lot of demonstrations and a lot of uh, still a lot of grievance going on at, at this at this stage. So uh, Soleimani was actually trying to be named as a hero who saved Iran from ISIS. Uh, a lot of Iranian believe that, and that was one of the reasons you saw mass massive funeral going on. Post these assassinations. The However, the revolutionary guard itself is totally on the questions and not being fully supported by Iranian people itself.
0: Hmm. You know, looking back at headlines, even from October. Uh, dealing with Iran and the US, it was a totally different world. We were thinking about um, attacks on Saudi oil facilities and how Iran may have been trying to position itself in a stronger uh, position vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia and then hitting the US that way. We were also thinking about the crackdown on citizens in Iran and protests, the internet being shut off and not really knowing what was going on in Iran. And now here we are in, in a totally different space. I wonder if you can talk about how, Neta, maybe begin, um, how things have changed even in the last five, six months. And is there any way to tell which direction we're moving in this relationship? Or is it still too fluid? Because it seems like so many individual events are influencing the direction and how we're thinking about this relationship.
3: In terms of the US-Iranian relationship. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so yes, um, there were moments in early January where we were all worried about a war because one of the things in, okay, so I'm a professor, I, I'll bring you a theory, so one of the things we worry about in international relations is that things spiraling out of control, a tit-for-tat strategy leading to a war that nobody ever wanted, um, but it is, you know, people are believing that Iran's response, the retaliation, um, was pretty tamed, right? The ballistic missiles really didn't result in a single death. Yes, we had about 50 um, head injuries, but not a single death. So it almost seems as they wanted to retaliate but not seriously retaliate, and I. Iranian the Iranian regime is a very rational actor. At the end of the day, they're out for survival. They're not out for suicide, right? So they realize not to take on the hegemon, um, the United States. Mm -hmm. So I think in terms of the Iranian regime, they're rational actors. They're not likely to go into war. And in terms of President Trump, um, domestically, the issue of another Middle Eastern war is extremely not popular. the, there's a study at um, Boston University by Professor Crawford um, that calculates the cost of m- for the United States of Middle Eastern wars from uh, 2011 and, and uh, from, I'm sorry, from 9-11 until now. Uh, the Iraqi war, Afghanistan, um, and Pakistan, and all of the region and Syria. And the results are um, $6.4 trillion and about 800,000, over 800,000 lives lost. That's from Boston University, the study. Um, So domestically, President Trump, I don't, at this moment, especially with the elections coming on, there's no interest in, in a war. There are people outside actors that are quite interested in a war. But I think at the moment, um, especially when he came out afterwards, said, there's no lives lost. You've responded. I think there was tremendous nervousness on his part that I don't think that he is interested in a war. I think what will happen is that you're going to have proxies. Now, can Iran control its proxies and how their proxies retaliate? I think you're going to have this low grade tit for tat. That that goes on, um, but I, I I you know it's it's very hard to predict the Middle East. Every time you do, you wake up the next morning and and and, and realize that it's. But I think at this moment, the cost of war for both sides is tremendously high, and they're both rational. So I don't think we'll get it,
0: Reza. Do you have thoughts on that kind of the trajectory we're moving?
1: Sure, I tend to agree with Neda. Uh, it's, we're going to see a lot of proxy wars. We're going to be a lot. Uh, we're going to see a lot of activities uh, outside Iran, outside the borders. Uh, I do agree that U.S. government is is not to, it's, been, it's, uh, it's best intention to get in, in, into war. Iranian government is not interested either. However, the Iranian government does want to have um, the authority and the power in, in the region. However, it's evident uh, they shoot more than 20 missiles, which five of them did not even explode. Uh, they did give two hours of advance notice mm-hmm. to military. So, um, And in the middle of the whole chaos, they shot on the ar- airplane. So that tells. Us as Iranian, that Iranian government at no position can handle a very simple attack. So, get into a war that would be a recipe for disaster. Although we're going to have a lot of casualty, but I'm pretty sure the Iranian government is not interested to get engaged in any any war.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Milena, when we think about pressure points from Iran's side. Uh, Netta mentioned oil, obviously, and then, and then proxies here. Um, we've been keeping an eye on the nuclear deal, and, and President Trump called this a, a maximum pressure campaign on Iran, trying to get the regime to give him an even better nuclear deal which it seems like the opposite has happened, that the nuclear deal that we had is fizzling. It's being held together with rubber bands and the EU desperately trying to to keep it together. Um, uh, But what has been gained here? So (laughs) can can you talk about the nuclear deal and, and where we're left now with all this maximum pressure?
2: Sure, so uh, most of you probably remember the Iran Nuclear, nuclear agreement, formerly known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was President Obama's signature diplomacy piece in the Middle East. It was signed back in 2015 by the US, UK, France, EU, Russia. Um, And it basically provided for um, the easing of sanctions on Iran. So sanctions were going to be lifted on um, Iran. And Iran was also going to get access to billions of dollars of frozen assets. Some of those assets were actually frozen following the revolution back in 79. Um, And in exchange, Iran agreed to essentially reduce its um, uranium stockpile by about 98% over the period of 15 years. Also, Iran agreed to a regime of inspections by the International Energy Atomic Agency. Um, by all accounts, Iran was actually complying with the terms of the agreement and allowing for inspections. The, these international um, inspectors were certifying each time that, that Iran was in compliance. But President Trump, back when he was candidate Trump, thought that this was a horrible deal and basically promised to tear it up. He literally used the words, tear it up. He ultimately announced that the U.S. would be withdrawing in May of 2018. In November of 2018, the U.S. reimposed sanctions at Iran because it withdrew from the deal. The European partners tried to salvage the deal, but by May of 2019, Iran basically said, we're out. If the U.S. is not in this deal, there's nothing in this for us. And so I would argue that, yes, we're actually, we're actually much worse off today than we were back when the agreement was in place because although the agreement perhaps was not perfect, it was essentially um, stabilizing Iran somewhat and by all accounts, Iran was complying with the terms of the agreement. Now all bets are off. Hmm.
0: Do you, uh, what what are the odds that President Trump even mentions this in the State of the Union tonight?
2: (coughs) I mean pr- probably not not you know it, it's very hard it's very hard to understand President Trump's rationale and thinking on this if, if there is any. Uh, <laughs> I actually I actually just read a long article today that was just published in The New Yorker about the Soleimani strike. and according to that article, the reporter, you know the, the person who wrote that article said that President Trump in late December, after these iranian proxies attacked the us embassy president trump was golfing in florida and he was presented with a menu of options as to what to do and i think uh, according to this article it was like a powerpoint because he apparently doesn't read more than bullet points <laughs> so he was presented with this powerpoint and one of the options was the strike against soleimani and he basically was like yeah sure let's do that and everybody was in awe you know people didn't really think he would he would select this so it's very hard to know how he actually arrived at the decision to conduct the strike, we do know that Soleimani had been on hit list before by Israel, by the Bush administration, and and by the Obama administration. And that I, I don't know so much about Israel, but the Bush and the Obama administrations essentially decided against the strike. So it's, it's very hard to tell what President Trump is thinking, whether he's thinking of the strike in terms of what this does for the nuclear agreement. I think he was basically you know, gung-ho, to be colloquial about it, about getting out of the agreement, but I don't really think that he has a, a longer-term plan for what to do next.
0: Neda, we've also been talking a lot about proxies, and this is such a... It's a complicated region, obviously, and and each proxy relationship is complicated in its own right because sometimes the United States is supporting both sides of a a battle. Um, But something that I read, and I'd like you to comment on it, was that one of Iran's long-term goals would be to create a land bridge of sorts across the region by supporting proxies in enough countries that they'd be able to move personnel and uh, materiel uh, to to multiple theaters of, of conflict. Uh, can you talk about, do you think that's true, first of all, and is the U.S. pushing us toward that by creating maximum pressure and, and throwing away formal agreements like the JCPOA?
3: Okay. So um, after the Iranian Revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini had two goals, one to consolidate the revolution and then to spread it into the region. Iran saw itself surrounded by enemies, right? It's a, a Shiite theocracy that is surrounded by Sunni Muslim states. And there is competition in the region, as you mentioned, for hegemony, for power. So the competition is between Iran, Turkey, Uh, clearly Saudi Arabia um, and Israel, right? So who's gonna dominate? At the time after the revolution, you get the the war with Iraq. The Iraq-Iran war was eight years and it was bitter and the Gulf states were supporting Saddam Hussein against Iran. So there was this perception of the only way for us to assure our future is to spread. Um, our, our theocracy and get proxies and allies across the region. So it was very important for them, after Saddam Hussein fell, that they get control of Iraq. Um, uh, there's an NPR very, very good um, discussion yeah. <laughs> about about this, about the, um, the war in Iraq, w- the consequence of the fall of Saddam Hussein. And clearly, it was a drain on our economy here in the United States. And then they, the report says that the winner of this has been Iran, because it has been able to consolidate its power within Iraq through its proxies, through Soleimani's um, support and network system that he had in the country, that literally he can go anywhere in the country and get whatever he needed done. Um, open, uh, um, a path, make sure a path is cleared for him to transport goods to Syria for his military. So clearly, they um, were able to consolidate their power in Iraq. They were able to consolidate their power in Syria and in, in Lebanon. Bashar al-Assad is very important to them, although Bashar is al- al-Assad is not um, Shiite. He is Alawi, and Alawi is seen as a sect um, very close to Shiism. So, they have been quite successful in gaining control and influence in Iraq, in Syria, with the help of Russia. And incidentally, we cooperated. The US, and well, they did, it, we don't have direct proof that there was cooperation, but they were on the same side in battling ISIS in Syria and in Iraq. Um, the Iranian proxies worked on the ground in battling ISIS, we worked on the air. So uh, in that level, um, there, there's no proof of direct cooperation, but there's proof that they were fighting on the same side. Um, with the empowerment of Bashar al-Assad um, in Syria, clearly they have power in Syria and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Mm. So certainly they, they've succeeded in achieving that goal.
0: Yeah, I read an article here by Stephen Cook. It's titled, There is Nothing Left for Americans to Do in Iraq. And it says the sooner U.S. policymakers realize that it's lost, the better, uh, which seems really unfortunate with all the blood and treasure which was lost in Iraq um, by the U.S. and and allies, obviously. So what are we left with? I mean, we started this by saying this is a— a complicated situation, but it seems like the US has lost influence in this region immensely uh, through um, what's happened in Syria, what's happened in Iraq, the uh, dissolution almost of the nuclear deal with Iran. Um, uh, I mean, is is it all hopeless, do you think, Milena, do you have any ideas here, or uh, do we still have footholds in, in Saudi Arabia and Israel? Um,
2: Sure. So obviously, Israel and Saudi Arabia are traditional U.S. allies. So absolutely, we have footholds. But it is true that many of the other countries in the region are really a mess. Um, Yemen is obviously a huge issue. The relations with Iran are are not in a good place right now. Iraq is a huge mess. You know, the U.S. went into Iraq in two thousand and three. Um, Hoping for you know sort of a quick intervention, and yet here we are today. Things are arguably you know worse than they were under Saddam Hussein. Um, so I, I do think that we're not necessarily in a good place, but but I, but I don't think you can underestimate the influence of the United States through Israel and Saudi Arabia, and I think that that will definitely continue.
0: Reza, one of the things you wanted to talk about was kind of the the knock-on effect among the diaspora of Iranians here in the United States from President Trump's actions in the region, and also some of his rhetoric. What were your thoughts sure,
1: on Sure. That? Well, I'm gonna go back, <laughs> review some histories here. 1953, there was a coup that it was orchestrated by CIA, and they actually managed to take one of the elected officials, Dr. Mossadegh, out of the power and bring back Shah into uh, to power. So, uh, clerics, Islamic clerics, they actually use that excuse to show that, oh, you know what, we don't want to have any in, any foreign uh, influences or interventions in our internal affairs. So considering that, uh, w- one of the, actually that was one of the items they used in uh, against nuclear deal, claiming that uh, US government is not trustworthy is not uh, looking into interests of Iranian people. And that's why when the nuclear deal was signed. Uh, Jawad Sarif, who happened to be head of this, the Secretary, faced a lot of protests upon his return at the airport. People blocking him and criticizing him for, for the nuclear deal. However, when the President Trump came to office, the very first thing he did uh, one of the first thing he did, he passed a travel ban, and that actually penalizing the Iranian citizens. Uh, I have my friends who are sitting here, and he's simply not able to get his green card because of the policies that he put in place. I have cousins, friends, that they have been married, the love of life, and they cannot bring them here. So um, among that, when, when he pulled off the nuclear deal, that actually added another layer, very significant layer of poverty and, you know, pressure on on people of Iran. I always say that what President Obama put in place as far as the sanctions, it helped to bring Iranian regime into the negotiation table. What President T, uh, President uh, Trump did from that point forward, it doesn't the the only people are hurting all the people of Iran um there are children that they cannot get medications there are individuals family that they suffering trying to make a living so um and Iranian government is using all these to to its own favor so one thing that we need to to uh to go back and look at the history and learn from it. For past 40 years, uh, Iran and U.S. relationship has not improved. It's getting worse by day by day. So we need U.S. government has to act smarter. It has to be open to dialogue. It has to bring diplomacy into tables more than it used to be in order to succeed. At this time, that that faith has diminished, as I said earlier.
0: I would like to give you all a chance to ask questions or uh, come up. If you have a question, feel free to come up to this microphone, and our panel will dutifully answer them. Uh, just to Raza, to continue some more on what you were saying, how is this affecting? the Iranians that are here living here with us in the US?
1: Sure. Um, very interesting question, <laughs> thank you. It has actually, recently, it has been a lot of impacts uh, on us. Uh, just, just about three weeks ago, we had a large crowd of Iranian-Americans who happened to be American citizens passing uh, the border. Unfortunately, there was a memo who was actually was leaked a uh, few days ago uh, for immigration officers to question these individuals. Uh, the pictures surfaced from family with young children, as young as two years old, three years old, uh, kept or detained at immigration office in Washington, state of Washington, uh, coming back from uh, holiday, uh, visiting friends and family in Vancouver. So. And there, are, I have individuals, and I know many, many of them. Uh, they they work really hard for past seven, eight years. They receive PhDs, <laughs> and they simply are not able to get residence residency in uh, in United States. And they have family members and ties that they cannot come to US, United States to visit them, or they're not able to travel back home. So I. You know, I, I, I'm, I, I do understand. Iranian government is not a government that we want to have a relationship with. I totally get that. But we, we are penalizing hardworking, highly educated individuals that they have come here to have a better future, and they contribute into to the society to a great deal. Just Iranian-Americans in uh, Killivillan area, I would say about 90% of them they hold PhDs or their doctors or physicians that they have come here to practice. at one of the most prestigious healthcare in the United States. Now, many of them, and I know I will say more than 100 individuals that they are having, paying heavy price for the policies that the current administration has put in place.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Next question, please.
4: Hey, also for, for Reza. Um, So the United States is a country of immigrants. We have large diaspora populations. And uh, a lot of times they they mostly seem to be uh, amping up the the conflict between the United States and other countries. If you look at Venezuela, you look at the Cuban diaspora population. um, uh, But there's an opportunity maybe for diasporas to contribute to more of a, a positive relation between countries. Uh, I wonder if there are ideas or programs that uh, you would suggest for diaspora populations that uh, could help improve relations between the, uh, uh, Iran and the United States.
1: Well, that's a very good question. Um, one thing which I have been very vocal about it, and in matter of fact, uh, for past, couple of weeks I've been asking my fellow Iranian in United States to get engaged uh, to be involved in in, in a community to um, make sure they to open a dialogue the other things actually uh, we need to uh, I need to emphasize um, I'm not really sure how many of you have seen me on Facebook or, or other uh, media channels I did have an interview with channel 5 news a uh, few uh, weeks ago, and one thing which I did address: Iranians have to be m- have to be more present. They have to be active. At the same time, I do expect uh, my fellow Americans to educate themselves more about the regions, more about th- the culture, uh, not to limit themselves to one source of uh, information. Uh, Google is the first to stop.
4: <laughs> you know.
1: um, during elections, uh, 2016, I had a lot of conversations with many, many, many individuals. And when I fact-checked some of the statement was made back then, they said, how do you know? I said, you know what, it's, it's just a simple research. So that's, that's something that, it has to be a, a very fundamental change on both sides. Uh, Iranians have to be involved which many of them, they actually have a fear to do so. Because of the fact, just I'll give very example, and my wife actually sitting right there. Mm -hmm. She said, be careful what you say, because it's broadcasted, and we have families in Iran. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of crackdowns. At the same time, um, Iranian, um, Americans have to be more open to learn and explore and have a communication with different people, different ethnicity, without judging them.
2: You. If I can just add, I do think, just following up on your point about, I do think that there's a lot of misinformation about Iran in the United States in general. And I think that the average American actually um, thinks that Iran is some super extreme Sharia practicing nation. Most Iranians are, by my understanding, very moderate. Um, And I think our traditional ally, Saudi Arabia, actually practices a much more strict and conservative form of of Islam. So you know, I think there's a ton of misinformation or lack of information about Iran, and perhaps that's one place where the um, diaspora could could play a role. Yeah, thank you. All right,
0: (coughs) so uh, my question is for Dr. Zahari, but again, (laughs) it can go for anybody. So although both sides have right now seized military um, tensions, but war is not really limited to military action. Um, based on the, based on the definition of hard power um, used by state actors, the usage of economic sanctions is commonly used to influence states' behaviors, um, in the way of the enforcer. So, couldn't this be a sign of war, as the U.S. tightens, um, <coughs> I mean, tightens Iran by further U.S. sanctions, and could this also be a U.S. strategy of war that doesn't have the negative effects of publicity in the national eyes of the people?
3: Okay, great questions. Um, So as long as you don't have a declaration of war, officially it's not a war, but it is a lower level way of fighting with each other. Um, Now the sanctions, traditionally in the literature on sanctions, there's a belief that they don't work, but here they're working. Um, they are having an impact and harming the Iranians. So in that sense, so you have a a lower level of fighting using the sanctions, using the proxies, but it's not a a declared war where we're, you know, challenging the sovereignty of another state. Um, Now, it brings me back to the idea of what's the purpose of this strategy of sanctioning Iran in such a severe way that um, the World Bank s- calculated that it has impacted lowered the GDP by nine percent. So s- there is a debate: what is President Trump after? And the media seems to conclude that he's after regime change and not really renegotiating a um, another nuclear deal according to what he wants, because there's no, as far as we know, there is no. N- nuclear deal too that's floating around for people to look at and to negotiate. Um, so the idea is that he's after regime change in Iran. He tweeted when we had protests in Iran, he tweeted, keep going, we support you, to the Iranian people. And he is trying to squeeze them so much that that is, seems to be his hope. Um, incidentally, a few weeks ago, he allowed some um, chemotherapy medicine to get through to the Iranians as a gesture to them, you know, protest, we're here, we're helping you. Um, it's a different form of fighting and and it's, it is not a war, but it is a different form of fighting, a lower level, definitely.
0: Thank you.
3: Hello, um, it seems like China has been working to increase its influence on a global scale for many years, and I was just wondering if you could comment on how they are
2: reacting to, or maybe even taking advantage of the recent series of events. Thank you. Here's So um, I think China is probably waiting for the opportunity to, to, to step in, and that's why I think that the Obama administration policy of basically engaging with Iran you know, through the nuclear deal, but also on other levels, was a much better policy than what we have now? Because for the United States, I would argue that it's actually in the U.S. interest to try to engage with the Iranian government for the purpose of, 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 of essentially trying to influence Iran, trying to disallow nations like China from from, from stepping in, taking advantage of, of the situation. And then I, I would also argue that it is in the um, US interest to try to engage the economic development of Iran. This this is kind of not, not goes to your question, but, but it, I think it's an important point to be made. Um, there is something to be said about economic development, because when for, for the most part, when people have jobs, when people live relatively well, they're less likely to engage in terrorism. They're less likely to sign up for a proxy and go and, and blow up things in Iraq. And so I definitely think that it's in the US interest to engage with Iran, to engage and in, 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 um, stimulate economic development. For our own sake, for the sake of the world, and then also to be pragmatic about it, if we want to make sure that China doesn't exercise too much influence in the region, it, it's better for us to be there.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Uh, one second.
2: <laughs> Is it
0: Farmville? <laughs> I'm I'm taking notes actually. After, oh, okay. I'm writing a report on this tonight for mm-hmm. class. Good answer. Um. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> anyways, I. I might have heard incorrectly, but I believe I heard uh, Professor Midas say that uh, Soleim- Soleimani was a liberal in a sense? In, in like what?
1: No, yeah. not, not okay. him, no, I'm
3: no, sorry. no, So, Rouhani. So, Rouhani, President Rouhani, President, okay. Rouhani, President okay. Rouhani. So it actually comes to an important point. So there's a general perception that Iran acts as a unit As one country, but in fact, it's highly divided. You have the conservatives Mm -hmm. and the liberals that can't agree on the future trajectory for the country. The liberals are much more interested in globalization, joining the world, whereas the conservatives are um, the exact opposite. They're less friendly towards the United States and more hawkish for policy. All right, thank you so much. Sure. Thank you.
4: Uh, so this question is for everyone. Uh, in the aftermath of this administration, how do you think it could be possible for like, a future president to regain trust with Iran and regain relations and make them believe that any deal they make with the U.S. doesn't just end when the current administration is over?
0: Thank you. Reza, you
1: want to say Well, uh, you want to have a short answer or a long mm. answer? Long. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the start will be to undo everything what President Trump has done. (laughs) So uh, so that would be the short answer. Uh, At the same time, uh, I do have to express that Iranian regime is not a trustworthy regime either. The only way that maybe it can help to gain a better relationship to actually uh, start supporting the people of Iran. People of Iran, uh, over 80 million people, I would say very small fraction maybe the supporter of Islamic regime. Uh, so one of the f- one of the most important things for US to show the support to Iranian people. Uh, to make sure that they do receive the attention they need, to receive the tools they need, and when I say tools, uh, there was a crackdown a couple of months ago, uh, and what Iranian government did, they shut down the internet for four days. That means no news, no video could leak out, and the world was in a total of dark of what's going on. Uh, in that in that event there was outcry to for foreign power including united states to make sure to provide internet access so the news can get out people can see what's happening and they can intervene if they want to so or if they can uh they they can do so so um uh, i think that's where i would go so the twofold undo what you have done and show more solidarity and more support to iranian people and iran people If they have changed the government 40 40 years ago, I think they are capable to do it again. And I think they should do it themselves without so many foreign interventions.
2: So on that last point I totally agree regime change just does not work we've seen it you know throughout history it simply does not work um, I would say that the next for the next administration hopefully a different one uh, I think it would be important to actually have a policy regarding Iran regarding the Middle East which is comprehensive which is more long term I think one of the biggest problems of this administration is that president Trump seems to have this transactional approach where he goes from like one, one deal to the next and when we talk about policy and we talk about diplomacy, it's not like one deal and the next deal. It has to be a much more comprehensive policy. It has to be a set of ideas that guides us for not just the following two days, but the following you know, several years. And so I think it would be you know, undoing much of the things that President Trump has done, and then trying to reneg- re- renegotiate whether it's a nuclear agreement, but also trying to renegotiate on an economic level, trying to essentially Uh, stimulate the economic development of Iran, um, negotiating over again the unfreezing of some of the assets that have been frozen. And I think that's also a way to gain the trust and support of the Iranian people, those who are not necessarily in favor of the current regime, but who right now see the United States as the enemy, not as a a friend and a supporter, and and because they don't see the United States as as a friend, are much more likely to turn towards supporting their own regime or supporting China or whatever other country wants to swoop in and try to exercise power and influence.
3: OK, so the idea of regime change, we've tried it and we failed. Mm-hmm. So we tried um, regime change in Iraq. That was a miserable failure. Libya, President Obama did not want to take um, Gaddafi out of power. But um, great reporting by The New York Times um, showed us the the negotiations that went on behind the scene. Um, the CIA did not want to take him out of power because he was cooperating in the fight against Islamic fundamentalists in the in the Middle East, but Hillary Clinton believed believed in building democracies in the Middle East and persuaded him to be on the right side of history. That has been a failure. We don't do regime change well. We do not do s- rebuilding states well. We rebuilding conflict torn society is not something that we have been successful in. So. Um, yeah, regime change is is not a, a very great idea. Um, how do we start building social capital with the Iranians in the future in terms of negotiating a treaty? Um, it, it will take a lot of work. It will take a lot of trust. I think you're right in terms of showing them the economic benefits. Um, it, it, it will take years of renegotiations. It's not going to be um, something that can happen very fast. Yeah,
4: thank you. Next question, please. Hi there, good evening. Uh, Thanks for taking some time out of your nights to come speak with us. Um, My question revolves around two issues that we've talked about today, and that's diaspora communities in the United States um, and the proxy um, forces or proxy movements in the region. Um, The Lebanese (coughs) and Iraqi communities, which are very large in the Midwest, have been talking a lot about <clears throat> the strike on Soleimani and how that will impact the revolutions that are going on in Iraq and Lebanon at the moment. Uh, could you guys elaborate a little bit more on how you think that recent developments with the United States and Iran will impact the revolutions going on there? Thank you. Thank you. Well, um,
1: kind of have to think about it a little bit more. So, okay, yeah, sorry, yeah, I'll help yeah, you, you out go, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I idea. think what's
3: happening in, in Iraq and in Lebanon, and I would also say in Iran, is that people care about their own survival and less so about any ideology any um, social movement. What they want at the end of the day is electricity, water, no cor- minim- minimal corruption. You can't get rid of corruption anywhere in the world, right? <laughs> um, and jobs to put food on the table. That's the common theme. And, and in fact, that was the theme that brought us the Arab uprising, right? Um, So that's that's common. What the Iraqis want, the Iraqis want outside forces outside of you know just to leave Iraq and let us govern ourselves. What the Lebanese want, the same thing. We you know we we want to survive. We want it's it's a similar theme of protests throughout throughout the Middle East, Um, and in Iran the same thing. They want their governments to do their jobs and. And you know, stop politicizing,, um, you know,
2: politicizing Islam for your own benefit, for your own survival, and just let us live. And, and just to, to go to, your, to go back to your question about proxies, this is why I think the strike against Soleimani was such a bad decision. Even if you assume that it's legal, I thought I, I think it was a really bad policy choice because it has the potential to escalate proxy warfare in Iran, in Iraq, in other countries. Um, Because, as as, as, uh, both of the panelists stated earlier, Iran is a rational actor. It knows that it cannot win a war against the United States. So how can it retaliate after the strike? It can retaliate through smaller actions using proxies. And that, 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 that might happen, right? So that's why I think this was such a bad policy choice.
4: Thank you very much. Thank you. Next question.
2: Hi, this question's for anyone um similar to that. There were allegations made that there was a Lebanese informant that told the US about Soleimani's um whereabouts. Mm-hmm. Who in Lebanon do you think would have the motivation to do that considering that Hezbollah and Iran are close?
3: I am no I have I'm not aware of that report. That's it's very interesting, but um look, he was all reports indicate that he was not hiding. He was out in view, yeah. everywhere, everywhere. So we knew his, his steps. It wasn't a secret where he's at. Um, who would do it? Oh, and a person that's motivated by money, probably. You know, I, it, it could be inside
2: of Hezbollah, it could be a... I, I'm not sure who it is, but... but and if, you, if you have the time, I encourage you to read this article that just came out in The New Yorker. I warn you, it's very long. It's like you know, like mm. 10,000 words. It's very long, but but it does talk about Soleimani and how he had been on a hit list by um, Israel, by the United States, and there very they're, there's detailed reporting about how his whereabouts were known. But it does appear to me that his whereabouts were known by Israeli intelligence yeah. agencies and by U.S. intelligence agencies, basically like all the time. You know, so I don't I don't think that we needed to be hiding, tipped yeah. off. Yeah,
3: he was not hiding. He was in plain sight. And I mean, in Iraq, he felt at home, because he could go and knock on anybody's door and get anything he wanted. So people knew his movements at the time. And also, in terms of the hit list, people wanted him dead, but everybody was afraid of the consequences. The Israelis were absolutely terrified of what it would do to the region, um, and certainly previous administrations.
4: Thank you.
3: Thanks.
0: Okay, this uh, is a question for uh, either or all of you. Um, We we are in a situation now where it's starting to appear as if uh, Iran is going to become a nuclear power. Is there any way that you can see to avoid that? Because personally, from my perspective, Uh, A terrorist regime with a nuclear bomb
1: scares the hell out of me. Well, uh, I have to tell you a little bit of personal history. All right, Iranian government does not have the money, the expertise, the resources to be a nuclear power. They have not been able to maintain their nuclear plants properly. Have not been able to uh, build any military equipments that is capable to carry out um, an attack. So I think the fear to have a, nu- a regime uh, who's equipped with a nuclear, po- you know, nuclear bombs. I don't think that's, that's truly, truly a valid uh, fear, right? Now, it doesn't mean that we need to uh, sit back and watch until it happens. It definitely has to be uh, monitoring place. It has to be negotiation in place. Uh, nuclear plan, uh, nuclear uh, deal was, was a good start. However, uh, as just mentioned earlier, they, they uh, sent about over almost 30 missiles and actually five of them did not even explode So that, that tells me you know, that they don't have, they simply don't have the technology to, to maintain a, a sufficient military forces. So, uh, but going back to um, eliminating the fear, negotiation is one, one step. To bring Iranian back to the negotiation table uh, make sure they have something that they can sign, they can ab- abide by, and they can. Um, that would eliminate the risk. At the same time, I believe uh, enforcing an um, an international monitoring program so they can monitor the Iran activities around it, nuclear would be a would be a nice uh, and efficient way to do
2: we we actually had that in place when the nuclear when the um, Iran nuclear deal was negotiated. that provided for inspections by international inspectors. Um, it provided for Iran promising agreeing to reduce its um, uranium stockpile over the next 15 years by about 98%. In exchange, it provided for the lifting of sanctions. But if Iran was ever found to be not in compliance with the inspection regime, the sanctions could snap back into place. So it wasn't this indefinite, like, oh, the sanctions are lifted off forever. It was the sanctions were. You know, it was a carrot and stick approach. The sanctions were lifted, and then if Iran was not in compliance, the sanctions were put back on. So I actually thought that it was a very good agreement and definitely uh, a way to keep Iran in check.
0: Yeah, a counterpoint to Reza's point. You look at North Korea, you look at Pakistan, you look at how desperate a regime is, how much do they feel like they're backed into a corner, and then it's this balance of carrots and sticks. Now, if we're only using sticks anymore and the Iranian regime feels helpless, then maybe all bets are off. We don't know. So the question really is, can we bring carrots back to the table? Can we be human with each other again? Um, and time will tell. I hate that saying, but we'll <laughs> have to see. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for your question.
4: And time will tell, I guess. And I sure hope it's a positive outcome. I wanted to talk about what you were saying about no. we need to look at Iran from different perspectives and learn as much about the people there as we can. I visited there a few years ago, and I I was telling some friends here, I heard Rick Steves on the radio say, oh, the people come up to you and say, oh, we love Americans, we love America.'" And I'm like, he's really exaggerating. Mm -hmm. But it was really true. I mean, adults, students, kids, you want to take a picture, they're climbing on top of each other because they loved Americans so much. So I think it's so sad, this recent turn of events. And I heard about the protesters are now, and I'm not sure this is true, so maybe you can help me understand this, they're now protesting against their own regime more than they are about us and and the other outsiders. Sure,
1: sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was born in 1975, and uh, we, went through revolution in 1978. So during uh, the Iran and Iraq war, I personally remember uh, when I was in elementary school and middle school, we had US flag and Israeli flag on the entrance of our classrooms, which we were forced to walk over. And I was personally one of the individuals who refused to walk over it. And we've been seeing it for past few, Days that you know the people refused to walk over those those flags, and you know I did that did get myself into trouble so ne- numerous occasions. But you know we had good relationship with many countries during Shah's regime. Uh, just like Dr. Milena uh, emphasized, Iran has one of the highest level of education among its people, so and that give them enough exposure to understand different cultures, different, uh, different um, you know, foreign relationship. So when it comes to uh, loving or love and hate relationship, Iranians don't hate anybody. You know, Iranian hates suppressions, Iranian hates... Um, being under pressure from their own regime to follow the, r- the law that they are inhumans. And that's what you can see all these recent protests. Uh, Gossam Soleimani, they actually, we believe we truly believe when they actually take him, his body from one town to another town, all those see it has been orchestrated. I have friends and family members, they told me that their boss, I mean, they work for a government-owned organizations, or uh, they were told by the boss, they have to report to work, but they're not expected to work. But they are, what they are expected to actually walk to bus or shuttles or minibuses oh. to get to the funeral. Yeah. And they were forced to go. Uh, the road around it, they were actually sh- uh, closed on. That's why we had about like 40, 50 people that actually died during the, the funeral services. So, now, when the news broke for the airplane, the down airplanes, <laughs> actually more people showed up in the street protesting against Iranian regime. So that's definitely, it's a great signal, and it's actually is a signal of hope that the art changes, Iranian regime has no face in their own, it's among its own people, and, uh, you know, I, I truly appreciate what you mentioned. That's something we really want to hear and learn from other f- fellow Americans. Yeah.
4: Well, thank you very much. I thank love you. my visit to Iran. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, thank you so much to the panel. Hopefully, we gave you something to think about uh, in this complex uh, topic. And uh, maybe we inspired you to do more research and keep the dialogue going. So thank you. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Have a good one.
4: Oh, thank
2: you.